Amen. If you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through uh, 7 this morning. Before we read this passage, let me just say that uh, there are at least three sermons in this passage, and the three-for-one specials expired on Black Friday, so today you get one. You get one sermon, which is a way of saying, uh, I'm not going to say everything about this text. There's no way you could, really. Uh, there's, there's much that we could discuss and focus on uh, in this passage of Scripture, but God's Word uh, is like a seed when it falls on good soil God is the one who causes the growth. He, he multiplies its fruit uh, in our lives in ways that go beyond what we could expect or what we could anticipate or what we could do. And so uh, as we come to God's word, we come with faith uh, that he is the one who bears the fruit that he desires in our lives. And so let's read together 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and trust the Lord to have his way with our hearts today. I'll ask you to, you're welcome to remain seated as we Read this portion of God's word. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Every word of God is good and perfect and given uh, with power and the promise that it will accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that today. Help us to believe that your word is good and good for us, and we pray you would work in our hearts to trust you, to love you, and to walk in your ways. And, Lord, we pray even in this, you might help us to see Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Several years ago, there was, um, actually it might not have been several, it might have been last year or two years ago, there was a podcast that highlighted uh, the rise and fall of a church in Seattle. Uh, some of you have probably heard of the church, probably many of you have not. It was called Mars Hill. Uh, and this church was planted kind of in the heart of uh, downtown Seattle, a very uh, secular uh, environment, a very difficult environment in terms of proclaiming the gospel and, and the spread of Christian faith there. And uh, these Christians planted this church and it had this uh, somewhat rapid rise after a certain point and, and thousands coming every Sunday to uh, worship, to hear 45 minute long sermons that were 
not simply just appealing to their taste, but we're challenging and, and calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. And God, God did good things uh, in this church. Uh, but, but eventually, for various reasons, it kind of had this um, kind of ugly collapse uh, as, as there was abuse in leadership and so forth, uh, lots of things happening. And, and this podcast was a result of somebody doing the hard work of investigation and trying to understand what it was that happened in this church. And one of the things that they highlighted uh, was that in, in this church, they taught a view of kind of male and female roles in the home and the church and in society, uh, attempting or trying to teach what the Bible says about how, for example, how husbands and wives relate to each other. Uh, but what they ended up with was was a bit of a distortion. Uh, it it ended up with kind of an authoritarian view of of male leadership in the home and in the church, and and the fruit of that was a lot of pain, a lot of a lot of hurt. People abusing leadership, abusing power, and those under that authority suffering as a result of it. I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine uh, who's a, a minister. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a good friend, a fairly liberal minister in another denomination. And as we were talking about this podcast, uh, he, he knows our church. He knows the, the PCA. He, he knows my convictions about the Bible and, and so forth. Uh, and he knows that I hold to a fairly traditional view of the roles of husbands and wives and, and try to hold to what the Bible says about that. And he said, as we were ta talking about this podcast and these abuses of leadership that had come up through this church, he said, you know, Dave, you, you seem to like women. <laughs> uh, and in particular, he was saying that, um, he wasn't saying a bad thing, you know, you know what I mean, but... He was, he was pointing out that uh, I seem to be kind to the women pastors in our ministerial association. There, there are several. We have a broad ministerial association. I'm a member of that, uh, just like all the others are. And, and he was surprised by this. Uh, he, seemed, he said, you seem very supportive. And at, at first I thought he was being sarcastic and was you know, jabbing at me a little bit. Uh, but then he said, no, you, just, you seem kind to them. I was surprised that he was surprised at this. Uh, but I came to understand that part of what led to his surprise was he had, he had just assumed that what often is a distortion of biblical leadership uh, among men, of, of biblical roles in, in marriage, that he had assumed that what, what he saw as a, dis what the distortions that he saw, he assumed that that was the reality and that anybody who held to those particular views must also uh, exhibit them in that same distortion of abusive leadership or authoritarian uh, uh, power and so forth in the home and in the church. And I think that we, we often, we, all of us tend to struggle with that to, to a certain extent. Uh, as we talked about last week, when we hear the Bible say to us things like, submit to, human, to every human institution, talking about government, and then the words to slaves and servants saying, uh, be subject to your masters. Uh, anytime we hear anybody say to us, there's authority over you, and it's your task to submit to that as you follow Jesus, follow the qualifications that come with that. We, we talked last week about how anytime we hear that, our hearts immediately say, give me the exceptions. When are the times that I don't have to do this? Uh, give me the exceptions that prove the rule. So it's no different when we come to a passage like this 
uh, that, that calls upon wives to submit to their husbands and then lays out uh, the godly character that, that comes with that. And even, I should say, when we get to the, the instructions to husbands, that we also have that same kind of reaction of, you know, how do we do this? When are the exceptions to the rule? And I think that we are suffering in many ways sometimes from the same problem that my friend had, that we see the distortions of biblical teaching in the world and even in the church sometimes, and we say, rightly, I don't like that. But then we say wrongly, therefore, I don't like this part of the Bible. And, and, then, and then we reject it or we make it say something that it doesn't say. Uh, and that's a challenge for us. When what we should be saying is, I don't like the distortions because they're not biblical. And what we often need to be doing is going back to the scriptures to try to understand what does the Bible say? And, and what's the context of these things that the Bible teaches us about roles in marriage and responsibilities of wives and husbands? And so today, my main aim for us, uh, at least in part, is to see that the marriage roles that Peter outlines here have to be understood in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and that was what I told my friend was, you know, if, if you're looking at people who are saying, this is, what, uh, hus this is what men and women, how they ought to be in the world in relationship to each other, and if it doesn't look like Jesus, that's, that's where the problem is. If we're not running those commands through the, through the lens, through the grid of Christ and his love for us in the gospel, his sacrificial leadership and his humility and his submission, if we're not running it through that pattern and it doesn't look like Jesus, then 99.9% .9 chance you're not doing it right, that it's a distortion. And that's often where we go wrong. And so as we come to this passage of First uh, Peter 3, we need to remember the context. Uh, and so I've got three points. They're not in your bulletin, so if you, if you uh, are helped by this, three points. I want to look at the context that we are to display Jesus in our marriages. Then I want to look at the beauty of submission. And then I want to look at the humility of honoring others. So the context that we display Jesus in our lives, our marriages, the beauty of submission, and the humility of honoring others. So what's the context? Um, the context for these instructions in 1 Peter goes all the way back to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Peter is giving us not a marriage manual, but a mission manual. He's telling us, this is how you should live as sojourners and exiles, as God's people in the world as the colony of heaven. And he gives two principles in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Resist evil and do good. Resist evil, sometimes within, sometimes without, and then do good and let others see you do good so that they might see Christ in you. This is a mission manual. This is instruction about how to be the people of God in this world bringing glory to him and, God willing, bringing others to see and to embrace Jesus for who he is. And in that context of a mission manual, he gives instructions about how you relate to government, sometimes oppressive government, 
about how you relate to, for, for their context, slaves and masters, servants and masters, for us, perhaps, employees and employers, those types of relationships. How do you relate to others in those relationships when sometimes they're unjust and you're doing good but suffering for it as a result of your faith in Christ? And then finally, in that context of a mission manual, how do wives and husbands relate to one another? And so the context for this is the mission of the church. How do I display Jesus Christ and his gospel in my relationships to authority, to in the workplace, and in the home? And so when we come to this passage, we need to remember Peter is giving us instruction about marriage as part of his broader aim that we show Jesus Christ and his gospel in all of our lives. And if you miss that context, if you kind of wrestle the text out of that context, that's where these distortions often, often come in. We remove it from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as if it's disconnected. And it's not all Christian instruction is rooted in the work of Jesus for us. And we have to remember that. So Peter calls us to this task in that context displaying the grace of God in our lives, sometimes to strangers, sometimes to our most intimate of companions. But let's look first uh, now at the beauty of submission, the beauty of submission. I want you to believe and to know that this is a beautiful thing that Peter calls us to, uh, that it's not just Peter calling us to it, that it's Jesus calling us to this, and therefore it's good and beautiful. Notice that Peter gives instruction to all wives uh, but then he focuses in on a specific situation to some wives uh, who may live with an unbelieving husband whom he describes as one who does not obey the word, namely the gospel. And so in this context, notice Peter's instruction to them. It says, likewise, wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You hear the mission emphasis in that, don't you? Peter is giving these wives instructions about how to live in a relationship with their husband has not yet converted to Christ. Now, in that context in the first century, it would have been highly unusual, and it would have seemed uh, subversive if a wife did not follow her husband in his religion and his worship. And so if a wife is converted to Christ and the husband is not, that, that looks like trouble in that context. And there might be a temptation from the outside to look in and say, that's bad, that's not good, this wife is causing trouble. And there might even be a temptation on the inside for the wife to say, I've got to aggressively convert my husband. And Peter pushes back against both of those things. And he encourages wives in this situation to patiently trust the Lord and to display the beauty of Jesus in their lives, not arguing their husbands into the kingdom, but displaying the truth of grace in their own conduct so that their husbands might be one, as Peter says, without a word, simply by seeing their lives on display. Sometimes people listen to us because they want to listen to us, and it's already established. Other times people will listen to us because of the way we've treated them the way we've loved them, the way we have encouraged them and shown up and been present in difficult times. Oftentimes, we are in a situation where we have to earn the right 
to be heard. And, and Peter is in some ways encouraging these wives uh, to not throw off the authority of their husbands simply because their husbands aren't believers, not to argue them uh, into the kingdom, kind of manipulating them in some way, but rather in submission to their authority in the home to lovingly live for Jesus and let their lives shine for him so that their husbands would see it, see it faithfully lived out even in the midst of a difficult situation, see wives loving husbands when it's hard and not giving up on them, and maybe one to Christ in that. Their obedience to Jesus results in their loving submission to their husbands, winning them often without a word. I think it's worth pausing here and, and maybe defining what we're talking about uh, when we talk about submission. So just a few things, uh, what it's not and what it is, okay? What, is, what, what, what submission is not? Uh, just three things briefly. Submission in this context is not blind and unquestioning obedience. Following Jesus as Lord puts all other obligations at least one rung lower. It, it, it makes the submission to husband relative to submission to Jesus. We talked about this last week when those two authorities collide. You know, if human government says sin and Jesus says don't sin, we always obey Jesus. We don't, we don't forsake that uh, for human authority. And the same isn't true in the context of marriage. It's not a blind and unquestioning obedience. Submission does not mean that you have no recourse for help in a difficult or dangerous situation. Uh, that's, that's never the case. It does not mean that you take your personality, your convictions, your opinions, and squash them deep down and simply become a molded replica of your husband, his thoughts, his convictions, his opinions. God made you. He made you in his own image, and that brings infinite dignity uh, to all people, male and female. Uh, if, if you're a wife in this situation, you've got a personality, and God gave that to you. You've got an opinion. You've got convictions. You've got thoughts. You've got gifts. You've got strengths, all of which are gifts from God. And the call to submission is not a call to take those gifts from God and push them aside and simply be a, a rough imitation of who your husband is. It also doesn't mean that you never try to change your husband. Peter's telling wives how to change their husbands, right? Honor God so that they can be one without a word. It doesn't mean you don't try to change your husband. What is it then? It's an attitude of the heart produced by grace that affirms a husband's leadership and uses your gifts to help him carry it out. When God gave Eve to Adam, he called her a helper which is not a weak word. God is our helper in many places in Scripture. God gave Adam Eve as a helper because Adam was not competent in himself. When do you need help? When do you need a helper? When you can't do things on your own and you need another to come alongside you to be your powerful partner. And it's in that context that this call to submission is given. It's an attitude of the heart produced by grace to affirm a husband's leadership and use your gifts to help him carry it out. And I want you to notice especially how Peter emphasizes character in this. I mean, he doesn't give any specific instructions about what submitting to your husband looks like, okay? 
He, he doesn't. He says it, and then he talks about character. He talks about godliness and internal adornment. Notice what he says. Don't let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on a gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Uh, just point out a couple things here, and then I want to talk about husbands for a moment. Uh, for wives, God sees you. That's what Peter says here. Uh, your imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in God's sight. He sees you. Uh, even, when, even if your husband does not see it and acknowledge it. Even if it's not precious in his sight, God sees it. And that's a precious truth that we need to hold fast to. It's not always the things that are visible and external, loud, gathering attention. Many times it's the internal adornment of our hearts. Peter's not saying don't wear gold, don't, don't fix your hair. He's certainly not saying don't wear clothes. So he can't be saying don't fix your hair. What's he saying? Where's your emphasis? What type of beauty are you focusing on? Um, we could say a lot about this, and I think we should at least acknowledge that we, we live in a culture where uh, that emphasis on external beauty and appearance uh, is almost soul-destructive. How much time do we spend just scrolling and the tyranny of comparison. Uh, we live in a culture that thrives on discontent. Um, you, you know, how many of you are getting ready to decorate for Christmas and you're looking on uh, Instagram or Pinterest or whatever it is, see, see ideas, and you start to think, I wish I had 12-foot high ceilings so I could have a 10-foot high Christmas tree with LED lights that adjust according to my mood. Um, I'm just so discontent or you're, you're following influencers and you're just scrolling and they're beautiful people. They're just gorgeous people. Their hair is full or curly or straight or they're bald or whatever it is that you're not. <laughs> and you want it. And you say, oh, that person is gorgeous. They're beautiful. Their life is beautiful. I wish my life was like them. I hate them. I hate myself. And God says, there's a beauty that's imperishable, a gentle and quiet spirit that comes from trusting Jesus, who himself is gentle and mild. This doesn't mean you don't talk. It's about the contentment of our hearts and trusting the Lord. It's what David talks about in Psalm 131, where he says, I've not, I've not exalted myself to understand lofty things. I'm like a weaned child before you. I'm quiet. I trust you. That's what Peter's talking about here. It's a heart that is trusting the Lord and bearing the fruit of godliness and a gentle and quiet spirit. And God says, I see you, and it's precious, and it's powerful, sometimes more powerful than words, and can win your husband in that way if that's your situation. It's full of hope. He describes the holy women of old who hoped in God, who used to adorn themselves in this way, and it does not fear this is a strong and beautiful passage describing a woman whose hope is in Jesus and who is not afraid of anything that would count as intimidating, not even a husband who doesn't love Jesus, who's demanding or whatever the case may be. She's not afraid because 
She knows the perfect love of Christ, and it's bearing fruit in her life. This kind of submission is beautiful, and it resembles Jesus, who became obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross, laying aside his own rights that he would take that cross upon himself for you out of love and submission to his father and his father's plan. That's the pattern for us in submission. Let's talk about the humility of honoring. Just a a few things to point out here. I know this feels disproportionate, which is why there's three sermons out of this passage and we're only doing one. So let me just speak uh, to you husbands here for a moment. And, And I'm a husband too, so I get to talk to myself in front of you. This is great. Peter, if we were to pick one word, or two words rather, for Peter's instructions to husbands, it's humility and honor. Humility and honor. Uh, Peter calls husbands to live with their wives according to knowledge. Our translation said in an understanding way. And particularly, he highlights things that the husband needs to know about his wife, or at least a couple of things that he needs to know about his wife. Aside from the fact that, husbands, you need to know your wife. You need to know what makes her tick. And as one professor of mine said, know what ticks her off. Do the one, don't do the other. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Know your wife. And in particular, Peter points out two things. Know that she, as as a Christian, is a co-heir of the grace of life. She's an heir with you of the resurrection hope that we all share in Jesus. In the first century, there was no sense of equality between men and women. Just wasn't there, okay? Uh, And scripture, the teaching of the Bible, uh, the Christian faith as it spread throughout the world, brought with it this incredible dignity for women. For women, for slaves, for the vulnerable, for the poor, for those on the fringe. We care about those things today in large part because our society has been influenced by the Christian faith. These are not pagan and secular ideals. They are Christian ideals to the core. Wherever the Christian faith settled and blossomed, there was a radical transformation of the dignity of all people. Um, And that included women and wives who would not have had that sense of equality. And so in some sense, the Christian faith reminds us that there is a radical equality between men and women. We all stand equally before the foot of the cross. We are all made in the image of God. Paul says in Galatians that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. And part of what he's saying there is there's a radical equality among all people No one has their foot in the door with God on account of being male or being free or being Jewish. Those things don't give you a leg up. There's an equality. The cross levels the playing field and we're to give dignity to all people. It's part of what he means. And yet at the same time, in the midst of that equality, there are clear roles that are given. And for the husband here, he needs to know that his wife has that dignity and that equality, that she's a co-heir of the grace of life with him through faith in Jesus, not because of him, but with him. What else does he need to know? 
Here's your favorite part, and you've all been waiting for it. He needs to know that she is the weaker vessel. Um, what, is, what in the world is Peter saying here? Peter is in no way making a claim that women are inferior to men, morally or intellectually in any way inferior, or any other way inferior to men. Peter's stating things that are uh, the facts in, in his day, and I think probably largely in our day as well. When he's talking about weakness here, he's acknowledging that men are physically stronger than women. Now listen, last time I taught on the roles of husbands and wives in a public setting, I almost got punched in the face uh, by someone who didn't like what I was teaching. So I'm, I figure that if that doesn't happen today, then that's a win for me. Just go with me for a second, though. It's just a biological fact that women t men tend to be stronger physically than women, which is why there's all this debate now, right, about men competing against women in women's sports. Uh, everybody recognizes that there's an unfair advantage that comes with that, and we're not saying anything about that making women inferior. Okay, just get that on the table. Peter's acknowledging men tend to be physically stronger than women, and he's acknowledging, too, that in this context, men have a higher social status than women, which makes women more vulnerable than men in that society. And so in Peter's acknowledging this to men and calling them to know it and to recognize it, part of what he's doing is this. Men, humbly honor your wives by not using your physical strength or your social strength to put them down. You get it? You see how it's not offensive when you understand what Peter is, is saying? Recognize that you are stronger in these different ways and that strength often brings abuse. Strength often brings uh, oppression, oppression towards those who are vulnerable. And Peter's saying to husbands, if you follow Jesus, you follow one who is the strongest of all. You follow one who has ultimate authority and power. And what does he do with his authority and his power? What did Jesus do with his authority and his power? He laid it down for the sake of others. Paul says that Jesus uses all power, all of his power for what? For the good of his church. That God is at work in you according to the power by which he raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus used his rightful authority, his rightful strength to give himself for his bride. And Peter is calling husbands here to do the same. And so it requires humility. It requires saying, I will use what God has given me not to my own advantage primarily, but in service to others. And to remember that service does not negate leadership for Christians. It defines it. It is at the very heart of what it means to lead, to serve others with the gift that God has given you. Jesus modeled this in himself. Psalm 103 says that God knows that we're frail. He knows our frame, our makeup. He knows that we're dust, and it leads him to compassion. And Peter is here reminding husbands you have strength physically, socially, that your wife does not. 
And that should not lead you to a use of that strength that is sinful. It should lead you to a use of that strength that is compassionate and loving and sacrificial, just like Jesus. Let me end with uh, just an illustration and then a question as we close. Um, Perhaps some of you are fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the 14,000 movies that have come out of that. Uh, Perhaps some of you have recently seen the newest series that's come out of this called Loki. Uh, It's based, the character is at least based on Norse mythology. So think Thor, Odin, Loki. Loki is one of the sons of Odin, these Norse little G quote unquote gods in Norse mythology. Loki is the god of mischief. He's always lying, deceiving, scheming, trying to get his way, uh, you know, selling out his family so that he can be rewarded. This is his character as a god, uh, as, as Loki. And in the recent series uh, that, that ended just recently, Loki finds himself answering this question, what kind of god will he be? And he's given the chance to become kind of the best version of himself over time. And he starts to change in this series from this God who uses his power, his strength for mischief, for deceit, for his own selfish purposes. He starts to change to use his power to rescue his friends, to do good to others. And the hinge on which that change happens is that he starts to learn to love people. Uh, He's never had friends that he loved, and now all of a sudden he has people who are important to him, people that he loves. And it's his love of his friends uh, that he ultimately wants to preserve. And so towards the end of the series, he starts to kind of wrestle with this question of what does he ultimately want? What kind of person, what kind of God does he ultimately want to be? And he realizes that what he ultimately wants is to love and to rescue his friends. But in this, he learns the paradox that to finally be happy and to finally get what he wants, he has to die for the sake of those he loves. And in that kind of dying, he finds life. And as we watched the ending of the series and saw this kind of dramatic redemption unfold, I thought to myself, I thought several things, but at least one thing I thought was that has nothing to do with Norse mythology. (laughs) That's just not at all at the heart of what these old myths are teaching. But you know what it does have to do with? It has to do with Jesus. They're borrowing this from the gospel. This is not coming out of, you know, uh, Scandinavian mythology. This comes from the story of Jesus because Jesus is the one who in seeking his ultimate joy, gives himself for the sake of those whom he loves. Jesus is the one with all strength and authority who lays it down out of love for us and then takes it up again in resurrection power and uses that power still to bless, to preserve, to keep, to build up his bride, his people. Husbands, your leadership must look like Jesus. It must be defined by service, sacrifice, love, and honor toward your wife. And that only comes from knowing the humility of Jesus, who humbled himself to become obedient.
to the point of death on a cross. And when you know the humbling love of Christ in that way for you as his bride, that alone will enable you to honor your wife in the way that you ought to, to use all that God has given you in service for her. And that is leadership. What kind of marriage does Christ call for among his people? What kind of marriages? He calls for marriages that display Jesus in the world. For some of you, his wives, that means displaying Jesus through affirming your husband's leadership and using the gifts that you have to serve and to support him in that, to lay down your lives for your husbands, for your families. For husbands, that means serving as you lead, laying down your life for your wife, for your family, in a display of the sacrificial love of Jesus. And if our lives, our marriages, look like Jesus, then that helps us to resist evil and to do good so that others might see through us Christ, his gospel, and his grace. May he do it in us. Would you pray?